0: Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, giving you the most in-depth take on the biggest stories in British television. I'm Broadcast Insight Editor Jesse Wittock, and this week the podcast catches up with Mr Terms of Trade himself, John McVeigh, as the trade body Pact turns 30 years old. In a wide-ranging interview, he gives us his views on what Channel 4 privatisation means for indies, and you can bet he's not sitting on the fence there. But before that, Max and I delve into the BBC's annual report to assess how the UK's biggest public broadcaster is faring on everything from cost savings to diversity targets. Plus, we'll reveal our latest programme obsessions in what we've been watching. All that and more this week on the Broadcast News Wrap. So we'll have the interview with John coming up shortly. Let's talk about PACT. And all things indies. But before we do that, I'm joined by Broadcast's uh, chief reporter, newly promoted, Max Goldbar. Well done, Max, who is going to take us through the key takeaways of the BBC's annual report, which came out this week. Some really interesting top line statistics. It looks like content spend is down Uh, 200 million there's definitely some discussion to be had around nations and regions targets uh, which have slipped and also around the diversity headcount at the BBC but Max let's start with the top line what would you say were the main takeaways from the BBC's annual report, uh, which for context is the kind of key document that we work with and that the that Britain works with to understand how the BBC has performed year on year and that which and that launched this week so so what what would you say are the sort of the key things
1: mm, well thank you thank you jesse thank you for that wonderful introduction and 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 a good week to to become a chief reporter yeah the the bbc annual report um i i, I felt like time had flown because it felt like the last annual report was uh, was about a week ago and then i realized the last annual report was actually delayed and rather than a year ago it was only nine months ago so it made me feel a bit better about time flying and everything going a bit crazy but it's 300 odd pages there's a lot to dissect it's also really helpful when you're given an hour and a half to dissect it and write a story. But when the file is too large and the BBC fails to send it to you for the first 30 minutes of that hour and a half, your your task is is made just a little bit more difficult. You're kept on your toes.
0: There was uh, um, there was chaos from various journalists. Max utter obviously. chaos. Um, I, I was getting messages from freelancers, uh, <laughs> sort of asking if, they, if if we'd received the document or um, or if if we could help out. So we were trying to do a sort of BBC comms job whilst trying to get the document yeah. ourselves. So um, yeah, uh, yeah, a big big thumbs down on on that <laughs> front for the BBC. But in in terms of what they were actually saying, uh, what what are we talking about? Yeah,
1: completely. So. Loads of stuff to pick out and, and you know, positives, negatives will come to that as it goes. The thing that caught my eye, the kind of first story that I wrote was around savings. I tend to, the first thing I tend to look for is, is the big money stuff. Some quite impressive level of savings that the BBC has now made since the last charter, so that was in, in 2015. So that, that charter asked that between 2016-2017 financial year and the 2021-22 financial year, BBC would save 800 million pounds. Now the BBC has hit that target a year early and is now forecasting a billion quid's worth of savings. So that was a kind of headline thing. That is a hell of a lot of money that the BBC has managed to save via reducing its headcount, via reducing its talent pay bill, lots of changes in terms of selling off some property. So that was quite impressive. Caught my eye quite quickly, nearly 1 billion pounds. And in the past year, so a year ago, Tim Davey, who'd literally just become director general at the last annual report, he was speaking a lot about headcount, talking about reducing both senior leaders and and just the just the general headcount across the board. And, and both have gone down by about 5%, which is quite a high figure, really, in the space of just a year. So senior leaders, I think, down by about 11 or 12 people. So that's an, an achievement that I think Tim Davey believes that he would have hit. And it's all this is all around. And he, he was talking a lot about this in the press conference as well, making the BBC a leaner, quote unquote, leaner organisation, having less people, providing more value. There was a hell of a lot of stuff around value again. That's the real, you know, BBC director generals have always wanted to give as much value to a licence fee payer as possible. You wouldn't not want to do that. But there does seem to be a renewed... And uh, almost a more commercially minded focus from Tim Davey, who has, as we know, stepped into the role from leading the BBC's commercial outfit, BBC Studios, and, and has much more commercial experience than his predecessors. So, that, that those were some of the feelings I was getting out of the out of the press conference. Savings, headcount, content spend down two hundred million pounds.
0: Not good Which, for indies.
1: Not great for indies, but shouldn't really come as a surprise because a lot of that spend will have been on shows that were unable to be commissioned, right? So this, so the, the last annual report, even though it came out right in the midst of COVID, actually covered the the pre-COVID era, which which oh God, we we pine for those halcyon days. But this annual report perfectly so it started on April the 1st, so it, it perfectly caught the first year of the pandemic. So as we all remember what was it April to June or so there was no TV production so I imagine a lot of the shows that the BBC would have been spending money on have now been delayed until say next year or the year afterwards and it was it was noticeable that the biggest fall in spend when broken down by genre was in the film and drama which is mostly they they spend some money on films but that will mostly be on high-end TV drama that was down around 20 percent in the previous year which is around double the proportional drop of overall content spend was down around 10 percent and so yeah that, that's not particularly to be expected you know it's taken drama a lot more time than other genres to to get back and I, yeah i imagine there's a few shows that would have had to be delayed beyond that financial year there, there was a lot in terms of channels actually bbc2 had a lot had a much bigger spend drop than bbc one which is also interesting so bbc ones was fairly incremental and that also takes into account that the the euros were obviously cancelled and the olympics were cancelled so you would spend naturally less on on those sporting events Uh, but bbc two down by about 22 percent which is interesting and obviously now bbc two doesn't have a channel controller so so things have changed there so i i I think what worry i don't think it's too much of a concern for indies i imagine that spend will go will go right back up
0: You might even read that uh, to to sort of contradict uh, my my tone from before to say that that 200 million potentially is actually not the the worst possible outcome that, that they might have seen last year. But as you mentioned, Tim Davey talking quite consistently about value in the license fee and obviously this is the the big debate around the bbc i think at the moment there there is a sense both government and the various uh, interested parties that the the license fee itself won't be going anywhere for a while and it seems to be delivering that value but if you unpick what that actually means the big battle for the BBC has been to try and attract younger people, which it has been struggling with, like most broadcasters. But it sounded like there was some good news uh, in terms of the BBC iPlayer and actually those younger audiences.
1: Mm, Yeah, another big key plank of what team Davies is trying to do isn't it around iplayer and and there were some big successes this year it's always quite hard to measure what's going on with iplayer like obviously the the way that barb ratings work on on linear tv don't work the same way for iplayer so they look at things like program requ- requests which sort of naturally skews things a little bit but more than six billion requests anyway for iplayer is a huge figure it was up 28 percent, which interestingly is just a smidgen higher than the all four 26% increase, although both doing well in years where their lead broadcasters are, are turning to a digital first focused, uh, VOD first focus. And the BBC did really well in terms of reach. So it has reached targets for the 16 to 34 year old demographic, that target is 70 to 80%. So as in reaching 70 to 80 percent of 16 to 34 year olds each week. And the fig- the target is 70 to 80 and the figure was 80 percent. So the upper echelon. So eight out of 10 16 to 34s are being reached each week by the BBC, which I suppose almost when I think about it feels quite low in the sense that I I barely really know anyone who doesn't get reached by the BBC. in in some regard, you read a BBC News article or watch something on iPlayer or or whatever it might be. BBC viewing to BBC Three went up a little bit. And more generally, yeah, I iPlayer views did really well. Twelve percent of BBC viewing is now taken up on iPlayer, which again feels like quite a low figure when when it's all the talk. So I I thought it might be more between the sort of twenty and thirty range, but I think it's quite a low figure and it also tells you how important linear TV remains, really. But incidentally, on the, on the license fee, 700,000 more people refusing to pay their license fees. So that, that's not that's not people dodging the license fee. That's people saying, fine, I'll put my hands up. I'd rather just not pay it. So that's, a, that's concerning, isn't it? In a year that the BBC's license fee income actually went up because for the first time it started collecting over 75 payments. So that's the first time in over 20 years that uh, pensioners have had to pay for some license fees. So... Yeah, good, good news and bad news. But that will be uh, Tim Davey has flagged this figure a couple of times before this license fee refuse Nick figure of in, into the hundreds and thousands. That's now at 700,000. That's going to be niggling away a little bit. You know, there's still 30 odd million people who are getting license fees. But you don't want to think that to go to the effort of refusing to purchase a license fee. And obviously, that means you also can't watch the other PSBs. It's, yeah, it it will be of niggling concern, I think.
0: Yeah, it's something that they'll want to stop the flow of quite quickly. And it also raises questions about how those people who are refusing those license fees are actually consuming content. What are they doing? Are they moving to Netflix and and the SVODs and and consuming that way? Are they consuming less media in general? Uh, Are they just on YouTube or are they finding other ways to watch the public service broadcasters and and uh, sort of go around the official systems any, you know any of those outcomes is a or avenues is an issue for the BBC and for all the PSBs. They need to try and sell the idea that, that the PSB ecology in this country is is important. And that's obviously a wider issue at the moment. Uh, certainly in the last few weeks, that's really reared its head with the, the issue around Channel 4. Uh, and obviously we uh, last week put out a, Privatisation podcast special. It's looking at the government's plan, which is now officially put to the public uh, through a consultation. That they do plan to sell Channel Four unless they can be convinced otherwise. That seems to be the the broad position. Um, and it's probably just worth, as an aside, mentioning that broadcasters decided to take a position on the government's view on Channel Four. This is obviously slightly away from our conversation about the BBC, and we will come back to the annual report. But we've decided to launch a campaign we're calling the not for sale campaign. And the the broad feeling here is that there is no evidence that we can see from what the government has put forward that the sale of Channel Four and the potential and likely change to the PSB ecology as a result of that does anything but damage the sector, which is, you know, for all the challenges it's facing and the threat of the SFODs and, and and whatnot is still thriving. The the Uh, production sector in this country which is largely driven by uh in or certainly in a in a a reasonable amount up to a quarter i think of of all indie commissions come from channel four which obviously doesn't own the rights to the shows that it commissions and hands those rights to indies um so as by extension is a very vital cog in the in the kind of ecosystem of how people make money out of television in this country so yeah we will be pushing on that campaign over coming weeks hannah bowler our channel 4 reporter will be keeping up uh, close coverage on, uh, on the comings and goings and the happenings at uh, C4 around the privatization. Uh, you'll hear lots more about it, but we are urging all indies to sign up uh, to our campaign. Uh, there's, a, there's a pledge which is going round. Uh, we've got a good number of signatories that we've launched with, but we'd like to get more. So uh, that's just my little aside that I thought I should poke in there as we're talking about the the ecology of the psb system but back to the bbc annual report max we we talked about some quite positive things for the bbc so far but there were a few quite concerning things that came out of of the report this year there was some uh, surprising miss on its nations and regions targets let's let's start there
1: mm, yeah for sure and, and very very quickly on channel four incidentally i asked him davy a question in the in the press conference about channel 4 privatization and he said some lovely things about channel 4 describing the channel as a brilliant champion for smaller creative industry businesses and he overtly implied his support for channel 4 not being sold he th- he said i think it's absolutely right there are concerns that any future ownership of channel 4 ensures that the current system and what it brings to the uk creative community is preserved so so coming out quite hard in favor i think strong there, words Davey. strong yeah. words from a, from a director yeah. general i thought uh, it, I I thought it was a really good answer actually especially considering that he uh, well, the bbc has to tread such a tight rope when it comes to its approach towards the government and we've covered extensively the government is clearly minded to sell channel four which is a conversation for another day and is also a conversation for our campaign back on to the bbc nations and regions targets were missed for the first time i think this is interesting again covid clearly the reason or certainly the reason that the bbc is putting forward so the bbc has to hit a 50 percent target of shows made outside of london that target is soon to rise to 60 percent within the next three to six years they've said so i don't know whether that will be in three years or be in six years but there's 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 some way to go it was 47.9 percent last year and i think it's it's easy to blame covid i think it's Easy to say it was it was a remarkable year. We weren't able to make shows for X period of time. But this is a proportion, this isn't a number. So I don't know how far that blame can go, really. Like the the whole pie was reduced of what the BBC was able to make, but it doesn't mean that you can't just proportionately reduce what you're doing in each nation and region. Now I know it's most certainly more complicated than that, but to have missed nations and regions targets now, this comes a few weeks after unveiling that big across the UK plan. It came out with all that fanfare, commissioners being moved around, news teams being moved around, portrayal being front and centre of everything they're talking about. So, yeah, I don't think it's a particularly good look. They did particularly badly in Scotland and in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland has quite a low target of 3.5% of overall spend and it only hit one7 so half, halfway off the Northern Irish target. The Scottish target is 8% and it hits 6.5. So again, a little bit off and then uh, it exceeded its target in Wales. But that would definitely be something for the BBC to look at. Off, I don't think anything will particularly come of it. Ofcom did make quite a big deal of saying to the broadcasters that they would probably be let off if they missed these sort of quotas because of the because of the circumstances of covid but i don't know personally I, I i don't think it was something that necessarily needed to be missed i mean all the talk over the past year has been of democratization hasn't it has been the ability for commissioners not to have to move around the country or have indies come towards them and therefore it's easier to commission people from outside of london so it's uh it's a classic money where your mouth is moment isn't it where you think well if everything has been democratized then why are we missing these targets and i think that brings us quite nicely on doesn't it to, to talk a little bit about diversity which again has has come into the has come into the conversation around covid so the bbc did not have a particularly good year internally in terms of boosting its representation uh, of black asian and minority ethnic people of disabled people and again covid was flagged but I don't know. It's hard to, you know, in a year, again, money where mouth is time in a year when Tim Davey has tasked all of his departments with this 50 20 breakdown of, um, of women, black, Asian, minority, ethnic people and disabled people. And the BBC is still quite a way off. So just for context, going back before Tim Davey, Tony Hall in 2017 forecasted, put, put together a 15% target for black, Asian, minority, ethnic people in senior positions in the BBC and the BBC is still not hitting that target. So it's a year on. 12.6% is the current figure. That's an increase, which is 0.3 percentage points over, over a year. So it's still not hitting those Tony Hall targets, let alone the Tim Davey 50 2012 thing. That's in senior roles. Um, and disability representation in senior roles actually went backwards, which again is really not a good look in a year that disability representation is at the fore. The BBC has been doing a whole bunch of programming around it. Um, we've revealed today that Jack Thorne, a disabled writer, is going to be um, delivering the Edinburgh McTaggart. So I think he might have some stuff to say about this. But yeah, disabled senior leaders made up 8.2% of the overall BBC senior leadership. That's down from 8.6% the year before. And even in terms of gender, it's still there's still not a 50-50 gender balance in the BBC senior teams. It's, it's I think women are 46 odd percent. And You just think, when's that going to get corrected?
0: It's an unusual uh, situation to be in, really, because like you say, that there have been various announcements and initiatives and targets set at the BBC. And if you speak to, you know, uh, interested parties within the BBC, they will point you towards, you know, June Sarpong's appointment as, uh, as as creative director of, of diversity and the various other people involved, you know, very, very clever people like Miranda Wayland. But clearly, the structures within the BBC aren't changing fast enough, it appears. And that's a big challenge for Tim Davey and, and Jun Sao Peng and and the, the rest of the folk uh, who are, are interested parties in that issue to, to sort things out, because it feels like, it, like you say, in the kind of past 12 months, there's been uh, there's been no better time to sort of improve these things. They've had lots of, you know, we've all been stuck at home thinking about the way things work. So um, it's surprising that the, uh, the the numbers don't reflect that. Perhaps some of the thinking that's happened in the last year will start to be reflected over the coming months and we might see in next year's annual report a bump i think if there if there's a you know a, a following drop next year there'll be serious questions to answer because that suggests that there, there are sort of fundamental things within the structure of the corporation that just can't be shifted and, and will need to be sort of you know root and branch change so um that would that'll be an interesting one to to go on
1: what i've always thought about diversity is that the biggest barrier to improvements is just the lack of a revolving door, isn't it? It's like ultimately you can't force the, the white men at the top of an organization out of their jobs. And that's going to be a real problem when you institute stuff like 50, 20, 12 targets in in senior positions. And and little hat tip to a to a friend of the podcast, Marcus Ryder, who who wrote an excellent blog taking in the, the diversity and inclusion gains and pains that were in the annual report. But one positive that he took away, which I think is really interesting and classic bit of, bit of uh, sleuthing from Marcus, is he, he said, for me, the, the biggest positive is that for as long as I can remember, the overall retention rate for black, Asian, minority, ethnic people has improved. So therefore, in previous years, it's always been that more black, Asian, and minority, ethnic people have left have come in and this is a green shoot this is for for the first time in a long while more have entered than left so that is something that is very encouraging for the longer term but it is going to be a longer term thing that's going to take time and that's why i think it's, it's dangerous to to come out with these big swinging targets that you that you then just just end up really struggling to hit and obviously at the same time as i said earlier Diversity and inclusion aside, senior leader headcount has been reduced quite heavily and headcount has been reduced quite heavily. So it almost feels like the two are are sort of bashing against each other. Uh, But that's that.
0: So now on to our interview with Mr. Terms of Trade himself, the chief executive of PACT, John McVeigh. Uh, Max caught up with John earlier this week uh, as PACT turns 30 this year. And John was characteristically forthright on uh, various, various issues around the industry. So uh, we think you'll enjoy this one.
1: So. Today I welcome a man who needs no introduction. It's John McVeigh, the Chief Executive of the Indie Trade Body Pact. Welcome, John. And I can't believe it's taken us this long to have you on the broadcast news wrap.
2: Oh, well, it's very nice to be invited on anyway. So uh, nice to see you, Max.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, look, today we are reflecting on 30 years of the Indie Trade Body Pact, of which I believe you have presided over the trade body for 20 of those 30 years.
2: Yeah, wow. Yeah, I keep I sort of keep pinching myself that it's now got to twenty years. I, I didn't think I was going to be here uh, that long, but of course it just shows what a exciting, changing, adaptive world we live in, and there's always new challenges. And you know, uh, we're lucky currently, I think, to be uh, living in a country which has one of the world's most exciting audiovisual economies. So. Mean, it means the job's never got boring uh, and the challenges haven't either.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's, that's the important thing, isn't it? Can you, I wondered at first, if you can remember your first day or your first week on the job, like what was going on when you started as, as CEO of PACT?
2: Oh, well, uh, my first day uh, I, I called all the um, staff together. and there were, there were much, many, many more people uh, employed by PACT at the time in our offices in Mortimer Street. Uh, I didn't know they, they didn't know me. And uh, I, I We we had a lovely little chat, but I was making quite clear that given the fact that the indie sector wasn't looking like it was thriving, uh, we were going to have to, you know, roll our sleeves up, pull our socks up and actually start to do a lot more to help all the people who paid our wages. Basically, That didn't go down too well with some. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm very, you know, I've always been conscious and to this day I'm still really conscious. Uh, and I hope the members know that, that you know i know who pays my wages it comes out of someone else's pocket from their hard work their creativity their hot spa uh, they pay us to deliver services they pay us to do things to try and help them and we should never lose sight of that and that's been my sort of mantra from day one really
1: and so with it that you you very quickly uh, having got your feet under the table obviously the the communications act was passed 2 years later which introduced the notion of the terms of trade which has kind of been the the bedrock of of TV production ever since, so th- that must have been something that you started looking into almost straight away, right? Like, what what was the um what was the backstory yeah, well, we, of that?
2: Well, we'd done some work quite early when I started, which looked at the sort of profitability of the sector, which was very low. Our margins were being managed on every single production, and every broadcaster looked at your overnight costs and micromanaged your budget down, uh, so that you were so we didn't own IP, we weren't in control of our profitability. Uh, and I said at one board meeting, uh, you know even Scottish bankers would not invest in this sector or they'd invest in a dead horse so <clears throat> but i think I think there was a number of opportunities i mean Pact had run a campaign trying to called courage to compete to basically try and make the case for um winning rights back. The only problem was it wasn't really contextualized in what how was this in the public interest, and I was fortunate when I first started to have the amazing barrel virtues, my chair chairwoman, rapidly followed by the equally amazing and very dynamic and determined Scotswoman Eileen Gallagher from Shed. Uh, and I think it was that point there was a real turning point of there's the Communications Act. If we don't take our opportunities now, we, will, we won't for another generation. So everything got aligned to resourcing arguments, doing all the lobbying, all the you know, and there was a lot of internal divisions. You know, some people said, let's not go for rights, let's just go for a bigger quota. Um, uh, thankfully, the, the, the IP argument won. Uh, and then we were, I would say, very clever in how we actually then manoeuvred our way into the corridors of power in order to try and persuade key people that this was something that they needed to take carefully, including the ITC, which was the regulator at the time, and the you know a, a much uh, dep- uh, a good guy Bob Phyllis who oversaw the ITC review, which basically found that what we were saying uh, was right. <laughs> so, mm. but that, that didn't happen overnight. That that was a good you know solid nearly two years of lobbying and persuading and campaigning, and you know that many indies were involved in that. People like Alex Graham, David Frank, Peter Basilgett. There was, there was a lot of people that got behind it. And um, while I was the sort of, at the other end of it, I was the person dealing with all the negotiations uh, or organising that, you know, there were lots of packed members who gave up their time to support this. So, mm. um, which is really what it's all about. <laughs> mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, abs- absolutely. And I, I wonder, this this moves quite nicely onto my next question, because I wonder how you approach, you know, so much of your role is about incrementally trying to push things like legislation or, or policy through. And, and I wondered what your general kind of broad brush approach has been to doing that over the last couple of decades
2: and whether that's changed. Um, well, I think we, we, we have a I have a, I have another very simple principle, which is will this save members money or will this make members money? because uh, ultimately that's what they're trying to do you know if they can't make money they can't hire people they can't invest in ideas they can't get a bigger office they can't take on a trainee you know it's all driven by the economy not a great the programs are amazing and you know the creativity is amazing and the awards are amazing but fundamentally you know this is not a grant and aid sector this is a commercial sector and these are commercial creative companies who need to make profits <laughs> to do anything good you know mm. Whatever it is they want to do, it's their money. They can do what they want with it. But if they're basically marginal uh, or, you know, close to zero, having to, you know, work like dogs in order to just to, to survive, that's not really the right the world that we should be in. That's not how we should reward creativity. And I, I suppose the other thing that I've always had a big problem with is this sort of bourgeois, upper-class upper, upper class idea that somehow artists should be starving in garrets. That's a wonderful thing. Yes, you know, well, the work's amazing, but, you know, you know, don't don't think you should get paid for it. <laughs> uh, mm. I've never had much truck with that. Being a Scottish working class lad, but, you know, I think you know if you've got great creativity and you you can maximise it and you can make lots of money, go on. <laughs> mm. That's a good thing, and that's good for lots of other people as well.
1: No, absolutely. And so the terms of trade. Uh, obviously, it was a little while ago that the Communications Act mm. was passed, but do you consider that the greatest achievement of, of the trade body under under your watch? Or can we talk about some well, of the big moments?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was one of the most transformative because up till then we were guns for hire, working on margins for in a soup kitchen where <clears throat> commissioners would get us to line up, they'd give us a bowl of soup and then they might invite us to the Christmas party and give us a bit of bread to go with the soup. Um <clears throat> That, that was the world, you know, and that's, that's the world for many these around the world. You know, that's, you know, you, the soup might, you know, be nicer and the, the bread might be richer uh, for some, but that, that's the model. And, and the terms of trade broke that model. So I think what, what the companies did, with that, what our members did with that was the success. Uh, all we were doing was creating the environment, but we've we've changed a lot of environments. You know, we've worked very hard. We worked very hard on the film tax credit, which was the bedrock of all other tax credits. We worked on the drama tax credit, the kids tax credit. We got we worked on getting the young audience content fund introduced. We were we worked with ironically the BBC to get the first robust out of London quota introduced in the previous BBC charter. The 50, you know, fifty percent. Um, with specific targets for the nations and themselves. You know, over the years, we've done hopefully a lot of good and not too much bad. We reformed child licensing legislation, so it was actually uh, fit for the industry and uh, it meant that you weren't committing a criminal offence if you employed a a youngster to work on a programme, which was the case previously. Um, So there's lots of things. I mean, there's a lot of things we do which you don't see because they're in the background to try and just... Sort things out and do, help everyone do what they all want to do, which is make great programming or great films or you know whatever. Mm. Be a great director, be a great writer. That's that's what it's all about. You know that's that's why I think you know through a whole set of uh, combinations of things that I think that's why the UK is one of the most exciting audiovisual economies. Not just mm. thanks to us, but you know I think we played our part. You know.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you maybe a lesser known change that, that that you'd been really proud of, but but I think you've um I think you've touched on quite a lot of them there. But I, I wondered as, you know, the the again going back to the start of the, the Communications Act in oh three, obviously the T V industry in the UK is now completely unrecognizable from from yeah. what it was then. Have have you found as that change has happened that your job has has become harder or, or has has become easier? or neither is the above. It
2: depends what day of the week it is, what's going on. I mean, and, and what problems someone has. Some, you know, some people, you know, people still have problems. Making things is difficult. Making things with people is difficult. There are problems. Uh, and our job is to try and help support our members when they have those problems. So I don't think that'll ever change. However, whatever the world looks like in future, I don't think that'll ever change. You know, bringing a whole lot of people together to try and achieve a singular vision to a budget is always going to to be difficult Um, Mm. and and probably should be difficult, quite honest. So, so you know, that's a constant. No, I mean, I think it was hard at the beginning because I had to, you know, get to meet a lot of people and understand the politics very quickly. And now hopefully I still do. And hopefully, uh, you know, we are still effective at that level, but, you know, but you have to be adaptive. You have, you know, I've worked with many governments. I don't know how many, 12 culture secretaries now, And you have to go in and explain who you are, why are we important. And, of course, the sector itself has changed beyond belief. You know, when I first started, the idea that Indies would be earning a billion pound a year in original commissions outside of the UK was complete pie in the sky. You know, if you'd said that in a a packed council meeting, they would have laughed at you. Mm. Um, Of course, now that is the case. And I suppose that, I mean, one of the other more subtle things, which I am very proud of, is all the effort we put in starting in round about 07 into international opportunities, getting trade missions, getting access to markets, setting up the packed indie stand and credit to Don McCarthy-Simpson and our team who worked on, who works on that and getting producers of any shape or size and small distributors out into the market. Because prior to that, we couldn't go to the market because we had nothing to sell. So, so what, what worried us was having got the terms of trade that, people wouldn't go and flog it, <laughs> flog their IP. They wouldn't make money. Uh, they wouldn't take the opportunity. So we thought, well, we better try and help. Um, you know, we, we couldn't do everything, but we wanted to do our bit to help people get in front of the buyers, get in front of the opportunities and to, you know, sell the IP they had, find new opportunities with buyers, co-producers, etc. And I think I think we've done a pretty good job on that, you know?
1: Mm, yeah, certainly, yeah. I mean, the the, the internationalization Of the UK production industry has been incredible, hasn't it? Certainly, since I've been covering the TV sector. So, you've you've worked with 12 culture secretaries. Who is your favourite of the 12?
2: Oh, they're they're amazing. And and the the culture secretary who did the most to get the terms of trade in, Tessa Jowell. Mm. So, who was just one of the nicest, fairest, most caring people I've ever met. And I don't mean caring in a sort of sloppy way. I mean, Like really caring about what was good for the UK, really caring about what was good for our creative industries. Um, And, you know, uh, you know, uh, a a lovely woman, uh, you know, much missed.
1: And and what's been your what's been your biggest challenge throughout? Were were, were there any were there ever was there ever a time when you you just sort of wanted to pack it in? Like it was all it was all becoming a bit too much over the past couple of decades.
2: Not really, because I'm not really made like that which may be a bad thing. Um, <laughs> no, there's been real challenges. You know, there's, there's difficulties. We're about to face a big one with Channel 4 privatisation. We will do our best. I will do my best to try and change that. <clears throat> but that's that's sort of what you... I mean, the great thing, I mean, why I've been sort of twenty. I mean, I said this once to when we were doing the downstream negotiations. I think it was with the BBC. I said, see, the big problem you guys have is every time you have a meeting to try and outthink us, you have the same people turning up well, I've got access to dozens of some of the smartest people in the UK. So, you know, entrepreneurial, smart, creative, you know, loads of huts bar. We'll always outthink you. We will. We will always, you know, find a way to do the best we can because that's the community, isn't it? That's you know, that's what it's like to be an indie producer. If you're not trying to do your best and delivering your best, you're not going to succeed.
1: And so, if we if fast forward a little bit to today, or or certainly mm. reflecting on on what's obviously been a, a very difficult year for almost every sector under the sun. You know, what, what what are the real challenges that production companies face in in two thousand and
2: twenty one? Well clearly price inflation is a big problem, particularly in scripted. You know, we've see, all seen the information on that. It's hardly a surprise. We've not invested as a as a society, as a government, as an industry enough in skills in order to try and make sure that price inflation doesn't get out of control, that we're still competitive and we don't price ourselves out of the sort of market in that sense. So I think that's a big challenge. We need to do more than that. And, you know, I'm very happy that PACT was instrumental in getting all the levies introduced for the tax credit support, you know, the, the, the scripted levy, now the unscripted levy, you know, that shows our commitment, both as an institution and as, as companies to investing in skills but we need to do more, and I think that's that's a big issue. Um, the, so that's a challenge going forward. Making sure that our domestic PSBs still spend a lot of money on British content uh, and invest in British content is going to be a big challenge. Um, and I think that's you know that that's going to play out over the next few months with the government consultation. Um, uh, the, the other one for me is what's going to happen with the restart scheme we helped get off the ground which underwrote uh, everyone's production uh, from the, in, when the pandemic hit last year. Um, and I think that's going to have to be extended. So that's another piece of work that we'll be involved with because we don't think there'll be commercial insurance coming along to replace that. I hope there would be, but it doesn't look likely. Uh, and I think that that is another thing I'm very proud of, the restart fund, because without that, our industry, would have we would have switched the lights off last August.
1: Mm, and it's come in for a lot of praise. And it, it, it feels to me that, in general, indies have been really resilient. Would would you agree? And and how best can indies now kind of navigate their way out of COVID and, and out of the associated recession?
2: Well, I think, I mean, indies by definition have to be resilient because you'll hear no more times than you hear yes. Um, and you have to be, you know, move quickly, be smart, be creative. That's That's what it's about. And I wasn't surprised when... You know indies were navigating that pretty well last year even in the teeth of the pandemic finding new ways to make programs to deliver to commissions even on lower budgets you know where there's a uh, where there's an indie there's a way basically is my my my, my view uh, so and i think that that set of values is going to help them navigate what's coming next you know we are at peak production again uh you know we do have labor market problems we do have facilities problems but you know, those are first of all problems to have, and much rather, oh my God, we're too busy. I don't know. <laughs> than, you know, rather than there's no work, uh, we mm. know what that was like. We know that when the recession hit and broadcasters stopped commissioning for nearly six months. We, you know, that was a worse place to be than where we are now.
1: Clearly, yeah. Clearly, there is there is a, a way out of the out of the mire, and, and it feels like indies are doing really well.
2: The whole the whole world is going to be hungry for great content. The whole world is going to be hungry for great ideas, right? And the whole world is going to be hungry for new ideas that resonate with how the world has changed. So, that's an opportunity, you know. And I think I think UK indies will take it. I mean, I can think of. A number of people off the top of my head right now who I imagine are already taking the opportunities <laughs>
1: no completely completely and look we speak to each other uh, in a week that that could could prove rather historic for the indie sector it's the launch of the uh, dcms's consultation into the privatization of channel four and it does feel very much like the dcms is minded to to sell off channel four which would have a huge knock-on impact on the indie sector what do you think about all of this
2: well, given that uh, this week is our uh, the launch of our thirtieth anniversary year, I think to try to spoil our party, to be quite <laughs> honest. This, I mean, having read the consultation, this is policy-led evidence. The consultation document doesn't really understand the economics of our industry. It has a number of uh, cut-and-paste flaws in it. It is not well argued. It is not rationally presented. It's repetitive. It actually doesn't really make the case on why they, they have already made up their mind to sell Channel 4. And I think given the, the, the critical role that Channel 4 plays in our creative economy, that will play in levelling up across the UK, that will play in diversity, inclusion, and uh, COVID recovery, to consider selling Channel 4 now for what will no doubt be a pittance uh, to someone who will not do as good a job who will not be interested in doing the same job that Channel War has been doing for nearly four decades, I think is completely misguided, ill-timed and ill-thought-out.
1: No, well put. Well put.
2: Doesn't mean to say they won't try and do it. Mm. But to be quite honest, I don't think anything I've read or heard so far, has laid down a convincing rationale. Now, of course, any government can decide what it wants to do with public assets. Yep, that's entirely right and proper. They are elected, they are public assets. But I think if you're looking to dispose of a major public asset, which doesn't cost the taxpayer any money, which does an amazing job of seed funding creativity and ingenuity and ip which remains in the uk across the uk and you want to flog it off i think you actually need to describe what are the benefits not just to the shareholders who might buy it uh, but to us the public it is our asset we own it not the conservative government we own it it's the public who own it so can they please explain what do we get in return because I don't think the public interest appears at all in their consultation document. And I think that's shameful. I would have expected better from the people involved. And I would certainly have expected better from a document that was published yesterday uh, about a major cultural and commercial institution like Channel 4 for them to at least have produced um, impact assessments, economic analysis, and also what the return is to the British taxpayer other than just the hard cash to the exchequer.
1: No, really, really nicely put and really passionately put. And I think, uh, I imagine your sentiment will be shared across the board. And, and certainly, yes, the, the knock-on impact is is a real concern. But it, it must be interesting for you or kind of difficult to to tread that line when you're, for example, working with the government on something like the the production restart scheme, which is a real positive, and at the same time arguing against something that, that the government is minded to do. So I, I'm just wondering... Uh,
2: well, I mean, hopefully, I mean, I think I'm well known in various governments and I've worked with many central states and ministers in various different departments. I mean, we will uh, we will work collectively to like we did with the restart scheme to actually do something unique uh, in order to save a part of the British economy, which would have disappeared as a result of the pandemic, which is which is critical to both us, uh, us commercially and culturally in terms of society. But at the same time, I can be critical of other policies. Um, I'm critical of the government's um, approach to a lot of our free trade agreements. Um, I don't think they're right for our sector. Uh, but that doesn't stop us also working with DIT uh, in terms of helping companies get to market. So I think it's you, you just have to be professional and clear about what is a good thing and what is something you disagree with and and, and get involved in the debate so, mm. Mm.
1: good the privatization aside um whether it whether it happens or not i want I wanted to end on a, a really broad question um, which is asking yep. you where you think the production sector will be in ten years' time <laughs> very broad <laughs> pie um, in the sky uh,
2: I think we will still have one of the world's most exciting production communities. I don't see that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, years ago, everyone wrote off the indies, uh, you know, and, you know, this is the problem that this sort of Victorian analysis about consolidation and integration and monopolization is the way to go. Well, not really, not in a digital world, not in a post-analogue world, not in a, a globally networked world. We we know that from TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. You know, we 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 know that the world has changed. I think British creativity, love of storytelling, uh, our disruptive view of I, c- I can do better, I can tell a better story, um, is something that will be there. Now, how we make it, where it's made for, I think will change without a doubt. But I think it is it is one of the precious things about our culture, and it's it's something we would lose at our peril. You know, and I, I've had many delegations from countries all over the world. basically come to the UK meet with us and go so how does how do you do this you know we're much bigger than you and yet our our creative economy is nothing like yours so and I hope that's that's something that makes me really proud to be British it's something not in a union jack way just in terms of our our passion and our love and desire to do better uh, to make it look better, to make it sound better, to make you know the, the sense of our our commitment to quality, I think is something that's definitive, and I think something that hopefully we never lose.
1: And and very lastly, I couldn't let you go without asking you what you've been watching on TV, because it's our favourite question to ask all of our guests. So so what's been on in oh. the McVeigh household?
2: Um, recently, Lupin.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: on Netflix really enjoyed that. And then all the usual lockdown ones like Call My Age and and so many I can't even remember now. um, And and of course, recently, uh, a little thing called uh, football.
1: I've heard of it, but we do not speak of it, I think. We uh, must not speak, must not mention it. No
2: jinx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know. Well, I hope, I really hope England do well tonight because I want to see a cracker of a final early.
1: So amazing amazing and that is a that is a beautiful moment to end on john mcveigh thank you so much for joining the broadcast news wrap this week
2: thank you very much take care
0: so that was max Goldbart interviewing packed ceo john mcveigh now max has rejoined me for everybody's um favorite section of the podcast certainly in our eyes anyway uh, what we've been watching uh max Tell us what's been on your box this week, bar the football. I think we're the, the pair of us and probably most of the country feeling ever so slightly worse for where today we're, we're recording a day after England made its first European Championships final uh, in its history. So I think there was, there was some celebrating done by all. Um, I was relatively reserved, but Max, besides celebrating the, the football, what's, what have you been watching?
1: Yeah, apologies for my croaky voice, but there's, uh, we're not going to talk about the football. I finished on, on Sunday uh, BBC One drama Time, which I can't remember if I spoke about it when I watched the first one, but hopefully I didn't. Uh, otherwise it will become a bit repetitive, but I might, do you know what? I might end up talking about it in, in December of this year as my show of the year. Cause I, I really enjoyed it thoroughly. It was i um, I'm not particularly, you know, a massive fan of like prison dramas or like crime thrillers or anything like that. But the, the writing was superb And I always thought of Sean Bean as a bit of a gimmicky actor, you know, the guy who just dies all the time and is in Game of Thrones. But uh, he was sensational. Like, I really can't believe how good his performance was as prisoner Mark Cobden, who's sort of of grappling with the need to atone for uh, killing somebody. Uh, so I hope that hasn't given too much of it away. But Jimmy McGovern's writing was fantastic. I enjoyed it a bit more than the last couple of Jimmy McGovern things I've seen. He tends to do BBC One single films as opposed to three-parters. But this this really felt like it needed it needed those three parts. Loads of interesting themes. The actual kind of narrative you don't even you find yourself enjoying it so much and being so invested with the characters that the narrative, the real story, it doesn't really matter too much. Uh, Stephen Graham was was uh, the other main actor, and, and he, has, he has his own story. He was a prison officer. I think it's going to win a lot of awards. I really, really enjoyed it. Also, a lot of really good turns from some younger actors who I hadn't seen before. Yeah, created a really great atmosphere. You really felt like you were there. I, I can highly recommend it. Time, BBC One.
0: In a sort of time on a tradition now. I'm going to take us over to America for mine. Mm. Um, I have been catching up on the Sky documentaries for Parter, uh, Wu-Tang, Mike's and Men, Which uh, is the documentary that chronicles the the sort of formation and the and the story of Wu Tang Clan. Who uh, those of you who aren't into U.S. hip hop probably won't know. Are one of the biggest American hip-hop groups of all time and that th- what's really interesting about this particular documentary is how this this group was formed i mean effectively that these were a group of or are still a group of incredibly talented uh, individuals musicians who all lived within about you know a couple of blocks of each other it's kind of like it's like if every in in our parlance max if every uh, really good you know british journalist came from the same postcode or something like that in london or if we if we were all you know from the from the same street or something like that and yeah this is this incredible conflagration uh, of, of talent who got together and were able to kind of put their minds to uh, pulling themselves away from what was sort of abject poverty uh, in, in like staten island and, and brooklyn and new york in the sort of latter part of the, the 20th century and it, yeah it's just a fascinating documentary really well put together they reunite the groups so a lot of them haven't, haven't um you know necessarily seen each other in that context for a long time and uh, and get them to talk through the, the the kind of the various things that were happening and the and the the stories behind what they were doing to, to keep themselves going and how they built the group sort of in the early days, particularly in the 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 first episode, is just absolutely fascinating. I'm not always the biggest fan of music documentaries. I find some find them often quite self-aggrandizing and the characters can be, you know, interesting but infuriating. And I think they've done well in this case to avoid a lot of the kind of posturing goes with, with musicians. Um, and it's just, it, it's a really good insight into how people try to break out of the sort of conditions they were born into. Uh, i just absolutely recommend it to anyone. Our, our good friend, uh, inter- broadcast international editor, John Elms, has been talking about this one for ages. He may have even talked about this show in uh, what we've been watching. <laughs> I the think past. he has. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm al- I recognize I'm almost, this. <laughs> I'm almost certainly has. And he probably put it far better than, than I am here. But yeah, absolutely recommended. Uh, it's really good and i also think it's it's a good example of how the Sky group of channels are really working as a as a as, as a broadcaster uh or as a broadcast group that kind of doesn't necessarily need to rely on overnight so this show has been on Sky documentaries pretty much since it launched I think and I'm only catching up on it you know a, a more than a year down the line and uh or or certainly a good few months down the line it's uh you know it feels new, it feels fresh it's all there so you can binge it quite quickly.
1: Good stuff. Yeah, Sky Documentaries has had a great start, hasn't it? It looks like there, is, uh, there, there are some great shows um, on there, and it, it always feels like the, the Wu-Tang doc is, is quite high up in that pantheon. There you go. Thanks so much for having me, Jesse.
0: That's all right, Max. Thanks for joining us. If anyone doesn't well, wants to know more about the uh, BBC annual report, Max absolutely loves it, so get in touch with him, drop him an email, <laughs> and uh, he, he'll be happy to talk. Uh, oh, please
1: but, yeah. do. Please do.
0: So thanks, Max, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining me, Jesse Wittock, for this week's Broadcast News Wrap. You've been listening to myself, Broadcast Chief Reporter Max Goldbart, and PACT Chief Executive John McVeigh. This podcast was edited by Hannah Bowler. You can check out all 50, yes, 50, past episodes of the podcast on Spotify and iTunes, or via the website www.broadcastnow.co.uk.